This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we build professional development systems to help engineers and their firms grow. You can now download our recently published AE Industry Trends Report, which contains answers to the following questions. How long will the great resignation last? Are firms still allowing remote work and how is it affecting their productivity? How are successful firms using data to create people-centric cultures? You can find answers to these questions and more in our latest report, which you can download at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. How can civil engineering professionals really build their leadership skills? I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and in this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, I am thrilled to get the chance to talk with BJ Kramer. BJ is the president and CEO of MCFA, as well as a host of the podcast called Inspiring People and Places, Architecture, Engineering, and Construction. He is also a former active duty engineer officer with extensive leadership experience in both combat engineering operations and large scale government and military construction programs. And that's kind of what he gets into in our conversation today. It's really interesting talking about how his experience in the military, some of the standards and procedures in the military has really helped him to grow MCFA from when he took over as president was about 15 people and now it's around 60 or so people. And I just really thought that a lot of the advice, the lessons learned that he shared in this conversation are things that we as civil engineering professionals can really work on to become great leaders. Before we go on here, I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, Keller. At Keller, our employees are the key to our success. We give our employees the tools they need to be successful in their careers. As part of the Connected Companies of Keller, our employees have access to a global network of industry experts and thought leaders. Whether you are just entering the workforce or a seasoned professional, Keller will help you to develop a career path tailored to your strengths. As we continuously grow, so do our career opportunities. To prepare our employees, we invest in their professional and personal development. We offer specialized learning and development programs tailored to specific career paths. From our project manager and field leadership academies to our foundations of leadership, our goal is to give our employees the tools they need to be successful. To learn more about how you can get your career started at Keller, visit our website at www.keller-na.com careers. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now I'm excited to welcome on our guest to the podcast today. BJ Kramer is the president and CEO of MCFA. He's also the host of the podcast, Inspiring People and Places, which I was excited to be a guest on. BJ, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Awesome to be here, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. No, it's my pleasure. We had a good time on your podcast and happy to return the favor here. I know you've got some really cool stuff we're going to talk about. And I guess just to start us off, tell us a little bit about your career journey. I know also you you served in the military. Thank you for your service. And we're going to get into that a little bit. Talk to us about your career path, how you got to where you are today. I graduated from West Point. I did get a degree in engineering there, systems engineering. So I call that engineering for uh, athletes at West Point. Civil engineering was too challenging for me. But when I graduated, I went into operational assignments with uh, in the Army, deployed to Iraq, 
did route clearance, which is ID hunting, basically. Uh, so very tactical, very operational. Had the chance when I came back home to go to grad school, got my degree in engineering management. And then a story that may come out is was between going back to an operational unit, but to go take command and understanding that the Army had this Corps of Engineers, which is really a civilian agency commanded by the Army or commanded by Army officers. I networked my way across the board, took some advocacy, which is kind of abnormal in the army to try and take ownership of your own career. It's usually the needs of the army. But I networked myself into a what's called a by name request, got an assignment after grad school. So I got my master's degree in engineering management, knew I wanted to you know, explore other options or at least prepare myself for a post-army career, whether that was going to be after five years or after 20 years. I had no idea. And landed myself as a, a project engineer slash resident engineer for the Corps of Engineers on a billion-dollar construction project. So that's what really opened my eyes to the engineering construction, big AEC industry. Always had a bit of a passion for what was real estate development, real estate investment. Loved kind of the built environment, if you will, as a kid, whether that was power washing houses, tearing out landscaping or help my dad in the basement with refinishing the basement or projects like that. I always loved seeing things happen. And then that billion dollar project really gave me a foothold at a young age at kind of a high level on a mega program. So Aberdeen Proving Ground, it was actually a $1.5, $1.2 billion project I was on and part of a, a greater $2 billion investment of military construction at Aberdeen Proving Ground. Lots of VIPs because it was close enough to DC and because this mega Milcon spend that was happening during BRAC base realignment and closure. And I can clarify any questions. I kind of got high level exposure to all aspects of design, construction, fit out, close out, handover of a building, and all aspects of construction inspection, safety oversight, construction management, project engineering, RFIAs negotiations of change orders. I mean, I really got a masterclass, if you will, in large-scale project construction management. That gave me an opportunity to join a, a smaller firm doing construction management. And I was hired for business development, but I also had some billable goals. So I was kind of wearing right brain half the week and left brain half the week. And I had some you know, interesting lessons learned there because I think that at times those two mindsets can conflict. And I was trying to figure out where's my real strength. I was trying to build confidence through competency by getting more exposed and getting experience on the construction side. But I was really gravitating to business leadership, business development, team building. And then I had an opportunity. I, I met with MCFA. Michael Furman was the is the founder of the company. It was a husband-wife team, woman-owned small business. I got to know them while I was at Aberdeen Proving Ground joined MCFA in 2012 as a director of business development and strategy. It was really a planning firm at the time, grew us into construction management. And then through some conversations in 2016, 2017, was named managing principal in 2017, and then bought the majority ownership in 2019. And you know we've been kind of building and diversifying since then. I can give a, th a quick thumbnail. We're about a 50-person company now. When I bought the majority ownership, we were about 17. We were primarily Department of Defense and federal government. We've diversified into 
um, New Jersey Transportation, but NJT, New Jersey Transit, a uh, little bit of Port Authority, New York, New Jersey work, some work with PSENG and some work with the Turnpike Authority. Uh, so we've diversified probably about 60-40 and uh, really 60-30 and the other 10% is you know, some entrepreneurial pursuits with real estate developers and stuff like that. Just to recap that, so you graduated from West Point in 2004, correct? Yep. And then you served for a number of years, right? How many years was that? I ended up right around six and a half active duty. So May of 2004, I graduated in September of 2010, I got off active duty. But the first 2004, five, six were really operational and then graduated in May, I think it was May of 07, I got my master's and that summer I started on the uh, the Corps of Engineers project. So 07 to, to 10, I was with the Corps of Engineers. And that big project got you a taste of, like you said, the AEC world and that you really liked it. And then you ultimately ended up finding your way over to MCFA in 2012 as getting originally into business development, starting as business development, but doing a little bit, like you said, billable, non-billable stuff, You know, figuring that out on your own as you went. And then it's obvious that you gravitated towards the leadership side of things to get to the role where you are today. I'm still billable, right? There's, it's a seller doer world or a doer seller world, depending on, you know, there's doing, there's selling and there's managing and all of those things matter on project delivery. But I definitely gravitated more. I guess I've always been more of an outgoing relationship building, networking kind of person. And I love every project we have, I can get passionate about. And, you know, if you get me in the weeds, I'll, I'll go there but it's probably not the highest and best use of, of my time. I realized early on. So an interesting story, if I can, is in 2012, when I joined MCFA, I was like the last person hired and and there was a mega trend of our contracts weren't getting renewed because of a combination of that base realignment and closure that was ending. So this mega spend is ending and sequestration is happening at the same time. So the Obama administration had done kind of a across the board cut so a lot of contracts weren't getting renewed. So here I am thinking first or last guy in, I'll be the first guy out. And luckily that wasn't the case, but it also opened my eyes like, hey, if you're going to control your destiny, you got to be bringing in work. It can't be like, you can't be waiting on high to hand you the next project. You got to go out and, and find it and hunt. So that really probably shaped my mindset to be more of a seller than a doer, if you will. That's interesting. And I think that that's very relevant to a lot of our listeners because I'm sure a large percentage of our listeners at some point in their career in the civil engineering world will have to, number one, make a decision. You know, which kind of road am I taking? Am I going to stay more technical or am I going to get more into leadership, business development, et cetera? And I do think a lot of private consulting firms, a larger amount of people will go on that business. It's almost like you get to a point where you got to, like you said, if you want to keep growing in this company, the best way to do it, in my opinion, is to bring in more money for the company, of course, and grow the company, right? That's the fast track. So it's interesting to hear you tell that story and kind of how you realize that, because I do think it is an important thing to think about and think through, because if you have those skills, it gives you a tremendous advantage. And so I want to talk a little bit to you about building teams getting people trained effectively, making sure people are happy. Talk a little bit about the importance of developing your staff and you know making sure that they're happy in what they do. I think it's really important today because people are just getting burnt out. Agree. And it's probably my top priority in the company is, is this, call it 
human resources, if you want, call it talent management and development, if you want. I really call it an obligation between employer and employee, and it's a partnership. I'll go back to the army and that advocacy of myself. Like Big army has needs, and I happen to be a resume and a statistic inside of that organization that has whatever experiences, and the army has whatever needs, and I'm going to get shoved into a hole. And the army has a process for it. And I think that they will say, and maybe they do a good job of it, of aligning desires of the individual and needs of the organization. So I own this company, my responsibility, I believe, and it's both an obligation I feel morally, but it's also a strategy I feel business-wise is to make this the best place that somebody can build their career. And how do you do that? Well, you got to figure out what their personal needs are. You have to figure out what their professional desires are, and then cultivate and build a roadmap or a plan around those two things. And in a small business, it's it's hard because you're building that roadmap with them, as opposed to in a big business where like that roadmap, you know, maybe it's not clear cut, but it's at least, oh, I see the project engineer over there, the project manager there, the VP or the director or, you know, whatever the the titles that you work your way up to an organization. Inside of a smaller organization where we're really growing the company widthwise and down, it's harder for a junior employee to see that. So I think it starts with intention. Good intentions you know, don't really mean much, but I think you have to be intentional about what you're setting out to do. I will own that MCFA is not perfect about what we're talking about, but we are intentional about trying to get this right and we will get it right eventually. You got to always be chasing perfection. So I think you start with intentionality. Intentionality says we philosophically believe this and we're going to talk about it and we're going to talk about it with everybody because we want our employees to hold us accountable to what we're talking about. So that's number one. Number two is communicating it with the employees, you know, again, holistically and then individually. And then third is building the processes around it to show that you, hey, on quarterly conversations or annual reviews, we're talking about this. We're talking about what your next steps need to be. What pathway do you want to be looking at? Are you looking to build yourself more technically? Are you becoming more intrigued in a project manager role, a business development role? How do we help you get there? Salary requirements are always like, hey, how do I make more money? And you have to be willing to have those conversations again on both sides. I want everybody to come here and want to make more money. And then I want my operations team to say, hey, this is the roadmap for making more money as an engineer, one, two, three, a civil engineer, a planner, whatever. I go intentionality, communication, and then, like I said, operationalizing that, putting the systems in place. And I think those are their review systems. So their people management systems. There's talent development systems. That's internal talent development, training. That's external talent development, certification programs, graduate degrees, all of that stuff. And then it's on the job training and, and ensuring that we are bringing in the types of projects that are allowing our employees to get more and more experience. Because I go back to, I know and I have confidence in myself because I was given probably more responsibility than I earned at a very early age in the army. And that was, you know, the nature of the beast. But all of my experience and all of my confidence came from having more responsibility than I was probably prepared to have and then stepping up to the occasion in that role. So I want to be able to give our staff, whether it's junior or senior, constantly challenging them with the, the types of projects we get.
I'd really, I really love to hear all of that. I mean, at EMI, we do help some companies build these career roadmaps. And I can tell you from my experience that even some of the very large companies, they don't have them. You know, they just never invested the time and effort to do it. And I think the thing that's good about what you're doing is it's never easy to go through this process. It requires, like you said, a lot of communication from both sides. But I think that it's a lot easier with a smaller company to start it than if you're starting it when you have a thousand people within the company and now there's a lot more variations and things of that nature. So I definitely commend you for doing that because that's important to start small when you're smaller. There's two sides to that, right? So I, I always joke, I can do it because I can control the messaging. And I read a book, Ben Horowitz, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Great read for anybody that's kind of going through a business startup. One of the things he talks about in training is training is one of those things that, you know, the CEO says, hey, we need to invest in training and then trickle down effect. And like somewhere down the line, some company gets hired and they train. I think the critical part is that it is philosophically important to the leadership team. It's not like a thing to do. It's like the thing to do, right? Investing in your people is the thing to do. Ben Horowitz talks about like, so when you're small, how do you start training when you don't have budget? I started by getting up in front of a whiteboard every Tuesday during COVID. I called it MCFA University on the calendar invite. And now we have a syllabus that's called MCFA University, but it's like anything entrepreneurial. Hey, everybody, I'm in front of the whiteboard from 4.30 to 5.15 Anything you want to talk about or anything that's on my mind, I'm going to start teaching and we're going to record it on Zoom and it's going to be available. And it's gone through evolution since then. I wish I had Anthony Fasano and EMI like two years ago when I had the idea and that there was some way that like, okay, we might not have a huge budget, but we can figure this out. And a guy that like, hey, I've seen what works and what doesn't work because I instead I did the entrepreneurial approach and we learned on our way. I think that the important thing there is like, Training's not somebody else's business in your organization. If people work for you, training is your business. And yes, you can hire somebody outside, but you got to be really intentionally involved in what is the training that they're getting because training itself doesn't work if managers and leadership aren't bought into the topics and then taking the topics that are being learned and, and then using those on the job and using those teachable moments and saying, hey, you remember Anthony's presentation on X, Y, or Z? This is exactly what he was talking about. And we walk out of a business development meeting or we walk out of a conference or we walk out of a project meeting and like, that's what that topic was all about. And then it becomes concrete to somebody. Otherwise, training becomes like topics... It's like a book you read. If you don't take any action with it, it's just knowledge in your head. But if you figure out how are you applying it in our day-to-day -day life, it all of a sudden becomes valuable. And that's where wisdom is. Yeah, for sure. And that's a big philosophy of yours at EMI because of my experience as an engineer going to project management boot camps, getting a whole bunch of information and never having the time to use it. So we try to space things out. We try to give people some things they can do on the job so they can really transfer the skills back. And I do think that's important. Also, in terms of learning and development, it is a good thing. Like we get calls all the time from companies saying, hey, we've got a great PM training program that we built internally, but now our project managers are too busy to give the training program. So my response is, well, then you don't have a great program because you're not doing anything. So I mean, if it's built and it's sitting on the shelf, it's not really helping you. And so I think to your point, it has to be consistent and it has to be practiced. And it's really important to have the leadership 
we like to call them sponsors of the program so that they are reminding people throughout the days and weeks, hey, remember when we talked about active listening in our communication session? This is the opportunity when you go to this meeting with the client to practice it and make sure that it's sticking and getting results, right? Exactly. But that's really important. So BJ, talk to me about some leadership lessons that you've learned as you've built the company or helped to build the company, whether it was delegating, you know, empowering team members, some of the things that aren't that easy for us to pick up. So let's go with delegating and empowering. I mean, when you own a business and, you know, the army, let's go back to training. You have employees around you, soldiers at every level that speak a common language. They've been through boot camp. They have a basic set of skills. And you have this org structure that really is your leadership and management. And I follow the entrepreneurial operating system. I love the book Traction by Gino Wickman. I follow his mindset that or his philosophy that leadership plus management equals accountability. In the army, I took for granted that I was, I graduated from West Point. I became a platoon leader. I had 30 people working, quote, for me, but all the systems were in place of like how we actually get shit done. When you're building a company and you don't have that same vocabulary and that same common operating picture, delegation is really hard. And start with, a client writing a scope of work and delegating it out to a consulting firm. Like half the time, the scope of work is not actually what the client wanted. Why? Because there's 17 authors, there's some copy and paste involved. The actual user of the service had to hand it over to the procurement department to actually get the person on board. Maybe they were involved in the selection, maybe they weren't. By the time you get to the project meeting, you know, you're lucky if 50% of the problem statement is there. So that's organizational delegation to another organization. The same exact thing happens when we as leaders, especially if you're a high quick start like me, I think I've defined a problem or I've defined a task or I've defined a project. And in the army, we call it implied tasks, right? So I can hand off what could be called a project to somebody in the army with a quick email because there's a bunch of implied tasks, but there's also a standard operating procedure for how we do it. They've been trained on it, blah, blah, blah. Right. Everyone's been through the same type of boot camp or training in the past. Exactly. So when I say clean your weapons, there's a hundred implied tasks to that clean your weapons. The project is make sure that 126 M14s or M16s are clean by the end of the day. There's a hundred things that go into the checklist and the standard operating procedures and all that to make that thing, that project to happen that day. Same thing goes in, in delegating tasks or delegating intentions or initiatives. You've got to be really clear about what level are you delegating to? And I'll put a Michael Hyatt tool that I love in our show notes or, or a link to it, but it's talking about like the level of delegation. And I think it's like, do the task all the way up to own the project and make the decision, tell me when it's complete. And somewhere in between there is like research and get back to me with a decision-making brief or research and just come back to me with what the options are. Like different levels of responsibility for that person. Exactly. And I think that his delegation tool is almost like, hey, when you write that email, are you delegating a task that this person is trained on, aware of, understands the background for, is it really a task or is it a project that just has a bunch of implied tasks in the back of your head that you're assuming are going to get done? That's probably the biggest business leadership lesson I've learned that that has 
allowed us to grow because I'm not perfect on this, but it's a step in the right direction of more clarity, more clear guidance, and more definition of what does success and what does right look like in this project or task. Because if if not, nobody comes to work to fail. Nobody comes to work saying like, I can't wait to not do what the boss asked me to do today, right? They want to be successful and we want them to be successful. We think we're giving clear guidance, but I go back to communication. This tool is one of those tools that allows somebody on the receiving end to like come back for clarification. Like, hey, boss got the email. Is this like, do you want me to just make a decision and go? Or do you want me to figure out what, is there a budget for this? Is there, you know, it allows two-way communication to really clarify what is being delegated. And then with delegation is delegate and elevate. When you get good at delegating, you can then elevate yourself to higher use of your time. And whether that's strategic thinking, strategic research, strategic business development, if I can remove myself from tactical to go into operational issues or move myself from operational issues to go to strategic issue, all of a sudden we're a better company because I'm not having to jump into a project issue on Monday when I was planning to go to a business development meeting, as an example. One of the takeaways for me from everything you just said is in the AE industry is like onboarding of employees. It's something that I think a lot of companies are not good at. And I think that what you laid out there should really present an opportunity for firms to, if you have a really good onboarding process that teaches them, call it what you want to call it, the MCFA way or the EMI way, right, to new employees, then they kind of have a good background, at least, and a base for when you start to communicate with them on tasks and how we do things here and the tools that we use. And I see right now in our industry with so many acquisitions and people hiring so quickly because there's so many projects that they're just not taking proper time to onboard people. And I think that's resulting in a lot of problems down the road for them and probably affecting the retention of those employees down the road. So I think what you're suggesting in terms of having some kind of a baseline that you can work off of, and the Army is a good example. Obviously, they've got down. They've been doing it the same way for a very long time. But generally speaking, it's a good analogy. And I hope that our listeners out there can think about that in their organizations, because I know even with a lot of the project management training that we do, people say, hey, we love the project management training you built for us, but we also need some kind of onboarding training to get like, if we acquire a company that has 30 project managers and we can't get them all through the training program right away, can we get like a primer for them? So the day that they walk in the door, they know how we manage projects at least and like the lingo we're using. So I think what you're talking about can really apply in many facets of a business to make sure that people are on the same page. Here you go again. You solve problems that I was dealing with for last year because I started out. It's like MCFA 101. What are the basics of our company? 101 is now required video watching week one of onboarding, right? And it's me teaching classes in front of a whiteboard. Now, 201 is our everybody jumps on training. 301 is our project management and we call it project leadership and we can get into the difference between leadership and management if you want. But I agree. The balance is. And look, big businesses, I, I don't have enough experience with big businesses in the private sector. The army is probably the biggest business in the public sector that there is. So you have to maintain this balance of scrappy and sophisticated. Good enough is good enough most of the time. Like put somebody in charge of of constantly improving it, but like you got to be able to start somewhere. And I agree that too scrappy, you move too fast, and you're going to create more issues for yourself down the line. 
too sophisticated and you never freaking roll out the program. It sits on the shelf because it's in a pretty binder. And man, we put a lot of money into building out the content, but hell, we don't have time to deliver it, right? Somewhere in the middle is the balance. And that's what I'm constantly always trying to juggle. It's a juggling act, I think, in all businesses. And I think that even when we work with firms to build these custom PM training programs, I always tell them, listen, we can do the pilot in a certain level of form, right? It may not be 100% perfect, like the program's never going to change, but it's better off to start training your project managers, get some feedback from them, and then adjust it for the next time we do the program, right? So we're not like, yes, you want to be eventually have something super solid, but and everything changes anyway. If there's anything we learned over the last few years, you're going to have to change your programs anyway every so often because of the way the industry changes so fast. So I think it's valuable to kind of keep moving as much as you can and help people as quickly as you can help people. So Another thing I want to talk about is core values of a company. I know that they can really drive culture. They can drive hiring. Being that you've been very involved in growing the company, like you said, you started with maybe 15 to 17 people there, and now you're at around 50. Talk about core values, because I think it's one of those things that sometimes can be more cosmetic unless you're doing it the right way and being intentional around them. I'm a big believer in it. The Army has core values. The acronyms leadership, loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. They were nailed into us. And if you look at any branch of service, you're going to get some version of those types of core values. So when you get a veteran, you get some of those core values embedded in those people. So I'm a believer in it because sure, there's onesies and twosies that you don't want on your team, but most veterans I'll go to war with. And I want a team here at MCFA that kind of abides by some core values. So how do you make it not cosmetic? You make it not cosmetic by not making it three executives in a room with pretty words like integrity or whatever. The uh, exercise we went through was to list our top four or five employees at the time. And what are some of the values or what makes them unique to us? And we came up with five customer service, which is now white glove customer service to really go the next level. Michael Furman was a bellman. We believe in kind of the Disney model of like, people shouldn't even know that we're engaged. Like it specialness should just be happening. So white glove customer service, intentional creativity and curiosity, which is the ability to think outside the box. We don't want to be encumbered by the past when we're fixing projects. Every customer's unique, every client's unique, every project's unique. We need to be able to take the scars from other projects. We need to be able to take the book manual of what engineering looks like, but we need to be able to apply it creatively to whatever situations in front of us because the organization is going to be different. The budgets are going to be different. The problems and projects are going to be different. Fun is a core value at MCFA. And what does that mean? You know, some of us are foodies. Some of us like bringing our dog to the office. Some of us like going to sports games. But at the end of the day, what we mean by fun is actually passionate about the work and passionate about the clients. So you got to be having fun. You're working 40, 50, 60 hours a week on this stuff. Like to come here and trade time for money, you're transactional. And we can't have transactional people. Fun is me saying to you, are you passionate about this? Like, do you feel called? And and that starts early on in those alignment conversations of like, who do you want to be? What do you want to do? Because if if you want to go have a food truck 
and you're starting out as a project engineer, well, let's figure out while you're a project engineer, how you build the capital to go get your food truck. And maybe we started as a side hustle and we figure that out. Like that's me being, you know, I want you to have fun. And if you at least feel like there's a goal that's happening while you're doing your project engineering to get to your food truck, cool. We're all winning. So customer service, creativity, fun, extreme ownership. I took that from Jocko Willink's book, but what does that mean? It means two things. Our clients' problems are our problems, right? So we got to always be thinking. The Army has a saying, understand the job, two people up and two people down. When you're a subcontractor for a client or a a prime, or when you're a, a consultant to a client, that's understanding their world. So understand their mission, understand why are they doing this project? It gives a little bit more meaning to what we're doing and then understand two people down. So extreme ownership is owning the project. It's also thinking like an owner. So I want to teach everybody inside of MCFA. I'm not asking them all to be CEOs, but I'm asking them to think about the business as if they own it, because that creates a stewardship mindset in how we do business. It creates a stewardship mindset in how we treat clients. And then last is teamwork. Teamwork makes the dream work. You got to be able to be a team player. You can't be looking for all of the credit. I had a podcast guest yesterday. He quoted, I think it was George C. Marshall. It's amazing what you can accomplish when you're not worried about who gets the credit. You got to have that mindset in our company because some days I'm taking out the trash. Some days I'm talking you know, to a bunch of people about what we do and everything in between. And you got to be able to check your ego at the door and do whatever it takes to, to run the business and to get the projects done. We came up with those by really putting out who are our employees, what do they have, what is it that makes them special to us, and they all kind of represented those types of core values. That's how we did it, and now we use it in everything we do. We do it in hiring. We do it in firing. We do it in rewarding. We talk about them in training. So core values can't be on a single sheet in the office or in the bathroom where you know, with a a motivational quote, as much as I love motivational quotes, you have to operationalize them. And we do that through, you know, the A player hiring process that, and the core values are a big part of that. Part of what makes core values powerful to me is the ability for your team members to recall them at any minute. Like you went through the army ones like this, you knew, you know, the acronym and everything. Right. And I think that that to me, if it's some long thing on a website that no one's going to remember, unless they actually go there and read it, it's not as powerful as if they can recall what they are right off the top of their head. And they're kind of, then they're able to live them on a daily basis and everything that they're doing. And so little tip for that, we have a, again, EOS, we've run a lot of our business around that month. Yeah, we use EOS too. If, if the listeners aren't familiar with it, it's called the Entrepreneurial Operating System. And if you're interested in building a small business, in my opinion, it's really invaluable because it does support building good operations like BJ has been talking about this entire, really, we've talked about this a lot today. The book is called Traction by Gino Wickman. And the book is great because it's an actual story of how he applies it to a small business, which makes the book very interesting to follow along as opposed to someone just saying, do this, do this, do this. Yeah. So in our level 10, we use core values to give shout outs. And it's like, hey, I saw Hannah do this. She took extreme ownership. And this morning, just this morning, I sent Hannah a $20 gift card to Starbucks because she got a shout out on the meeting. She wasn't even on the meeting. This is the stuff that's trickling up. and, And this is how we get our team talking about it because then those core values are being lived and we're hearing examples of like, what does that core value look like in action? And we talk about them in training. So 
agree they they can't just be sitting on the wall. They have to be embedded in in how you're doing business. And for those of you wondering what a level 10 is, it's a, they call level 10 staff meetings in EOS, which, you know, to try to get the highest maximum value out of your meetings when you're getting people together. So one last thing I want to talk about before we wrap this segment up is I want to talk a little bit about veterans. And we just had Veterans Day. And to me, I think every day should be Veterans Day. I have my, both my grandfathers are veterans and I always try to thank people when they serve. It's, they give a lot, their families give a lot. And I know that you've spent a lot of time helping a lot of people transition from the military into the engineering and construction industry. Talk a little bit about how you've helped people make that transition and why veterans are a really good fit for the industry that we're in. First, the, the starting point of this is I'm a veteran, and I think that we bring a unique skill set, and I think that every background, diverse population, whatever, brings some some unique skill sets, and, and you have to be able to tap into any talent that's on your team. I'm a veteran, so I understand that, and, and I also understand the veteran journey, right? You take the uniform off, and we have an epidemic going on of suicide in our veteran population. There's a bit of a, a calling to me to try and fix that and and you fix it from where you sit. And I think one of the things that guys are struggling with is you put on a uniform, you serve a calling greater than yourself. You come home, people thank you. There's a certain pride of just wearing the uniform. And it doesn't matter if you're shooting bad guys in Iraq or, you know, sweeping the motor pool in Fort Hood, Texas. You're a part of this big thing that in my upbringing is a really noble thing. And then you go into business and a lot of business is transactional. So there's two issues going on. A lot of veterans aren't getting jobs or a lot of veterans are going to big businesses and like, there's no teamwork, there's no camaraderie. It's it's very transactional. I'm not having fun. There's no meaning. So first and foremost is I'm trying to help veterans just understand that they have the opportunity to create mission and meaning and use their leadership skills in the AEC industry. And there's a lot of opportunity. So I think a lot of people talk about project management, project leadership. You actually just had a uh, a webinar on October 27th, Work Trends in AEC. And I have a, a statistic here. I did some homework for this podcast. 69% of AEC professionals wanted more people management and leadership training. That's a need of the industry. That's a need of our teams. We have a population, and I think the statistic, if my 13 Google searches are correct, is 200,000 veterans are transitioning out of the army every year. We in the industry have an aging out population and a growing backlog of work coming, right? If the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act in whatever form it comes, but whatever you look at, we have aging infrastructure that's going to have to be rebuilt. And then we have new capital projects coming. So you have these two mega trends in the industry that say we need more people because we have more work and we have an aging out population. And you have a consistent trend I've heard, which is we suck at project management and people management and leadership skills. So here I have a moral obligation to like help any veteran. You know, we have a foundation that if somebody's really down and out, we'll put a bear hug them and help them get on their feet. But we have a, a business initiative called the DOD to AEC, Department of Defense to Architect, Engineering, Construction, to help anybody that's thinking about transitioning into the industry. And I don't care if it's real estate development, resiliency, infrastructure, 
healthcare facilities, like it's a big industry and there's a lot of needs basically to help them figure out what are all the opportunities? How do they get ready to, whether they're six months away from leaving the military, 18 months away from leaving the military, or maybe they've been in the private sector for three years and they're not finding any gratification in what they're doing. So DOD to AEC is our, our initiative around both giving ourselves a talent strategy, but also trying to increase the leadership and uh, people management acumen of our industry. Your foundation, whatever other resources that we can get from BJ, we'll post them on the show notes because I think we all should get involved in trying to help veterans transition into the workforce. I think it's important just to give back. They've been helping us. They've given their lives. You know, They have put their lives out there for us. We should help them. And I think to your point, from everything we've talked about today, I would imagine that them that makes them really potentially productive professionals. I mean, look at what they've handled in terms of just putting their lives on the line where we come to work. I mean, yeah, something might go wrong, but we're not getting shot at. Totally. You go back to the core values or the core of a veteran. They've likely been doing people management in chaotic situations. They're loyal to the organization. They're not doing it for a paycheck because a lot of them aren't making a ton of money. They're a great employee base and they bring a ton of training that they've already been handed in the leadership and management side. So all we have to do is either hook them up with the right credentialing and coursework or degree work to get them really to be technically astute. But I've been around projects for a long time. Technical issues are about 50% of the stuff we deal with. People issues are the other 50%. And whether that's project team, whether that's client organization and the, you know, the broken communications between the two, I think that veterans bring a lot to the table. It's a good business strategy. Is like a hundred percent there's some moral calling to me. And like you said, you know, you feel a little bit of that obligation to give them back. But I want to convince business leaders it's good business, right? It's a talent strategy that will make you money. No, I think it's a good business strategy and it's a good humanitarian effort. You kind of get both of those rolled into one, which is like, you can't really beat that. So that's awesome. All right. We're going to take a real quick break and we're going to come back and we're going to put BJ on the civil engineering hot seat and wrap things up. Civil engineering podcast. Civil engineering podcast. All right. We are back with BJ Kramer, president and CEO of MCFA. He's also the host of the podcast, Inspiring People and Places. And now, BJ, we're putting you on the civil engineering hot seat. You ready? I'm ready. All right. Do you have any specific rituals that you practice every day? Maybe it's a morning routine, a lunchtime routine. I'm probably asking someone who's got a lot of them this question, but maybe you have a favorite one or two things that you do every day that have been helpful to your success. The greater responsibility you get, the more morning routines matter. I would be lying if I said I do this every day, but I try to do this most days is time in prayer. There's actually a book that you know I try to go by. It's um, The Miracle Morning, Hal Elrod, Savers, Silence Affirmation, Visualization, Exercise, Reflection, and Scribing works with Savers because it's really journaling. So I try to have some version of that you know, some of it's Wim Hof breathing, some of it's, you know, I'm a Catholic guy that does the rosary when I can. It's kind of the grounding stuff. And I always try to get some exercise to burn, whether that's anxious energy, excited energy, or too many ideas running. Exercise gets some of that out and then journaling in some way, shape, or form. And then I think the other thing is connecting with people. 
there's two parts to this because it's changed. But early on, I said yes to everything. I didn't have kids. I didn't have family to worry about. I just said yes, whether it was a networking dinner, you go to this conference, wherever. Can you go look at this client? Can you go to a project meeting? I said yes to everything. And I think that that's a really good strategy early on in your career because one, you're going to challenge yourself. Two, you're going to get exposed to a lot. Now I'm trying to say no to as many things as possible because two parts, right? Who can I delegate that to for them to get that experience? And is this the highest and best use of my time? So I'm working through that. And I think that, you know, at some point in your career, you have to make that switch from saying yes to everything to saying yes to very few things. I like to ask people to mention a couple of books that have changed their lives or careers. You already mentioned a couple good ones in Extreme Ownership. Also, you mentioned The Miracle Morning, which by the way, we interviewed Hal on the Engineering Career Coach podcast. So I'll link to that for those of you that want to hear him walk through his process. I want to ask you, and you can mention a couple of books here, but also I want to ask you from everything you've been doing from a strategy perspective too, maybe there's some books in terms of strategy that you found to be helpful. Whatever you want to throw out here would be great, but I know we're limited on time. So just give me a couple. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you a list that we can link to because I think that's good. But the books that changed my life, How to Win Friends and Influence People, The Greatest Salesman in the World. So I'm giving you non-engineering books, right? There's a third one that is really important that I can't think of right now. And then I love the Jocko books. I love the Gino Wickman books. I broke it out. There's project management, there's leadership, uh, there's strategy, and there's you know what I think every professional should read. There was one other thing I want to say there, but we'll, we'll have to come back to it. Yeah, if you think of that, and we'll take the list, we'll share it with everybody. That'd be really great. All right. So the last question I'm going to ask you here, we call it the civil engineering career elevator advice question. You get into an elevator with a professional, maybe they're starting out their career, they're younger in their career in the AEC industry, and they're looking for some career advice, but you only have about 30 seconds with him or her. What advice are you sharing with that person based on everything you've learned in life and your career so far? It's go to meetings early and get to know everybody in the room because you never know where the relationship is going to go. This is also why I say read, because reading allows you to learn from other people, but there's nothing beats personal connection and mentorship. So get to the meeting early, stay at the meeting late, because during the meeting, project is being talked about. And while you're in the meeting, take really good minutes, because whoever takes the minutes kind of controls the project. That's a technical hack, but get to the meeting early or stay at the meeting late, get to know people. The second piece is find a place to volunteer because it's a leadership hack. Every nonprofit organization out there has a mission and they have a lack of resources or a lack of people. You could become a project manager tomorrow for any nonprofit that has some initiative or some event that they want to run next year. And the leadership management skills, people skills that you get from that for free in committing your time to them is better than any MBA program or any training program that you're going to go through because it's real life. You're not getting paid for it, but you're not paying for it. And it should be fun and it, it should feel good because you're doing something passionate. I remember the book because you said maybe there's a strategy book, Blue Ocean Strategy. Great book. There's red oceans and blue oceans. Red oceans is where everybody's competing. Blue ocean is kind of creating your own ocean for competition. BJ, before we let you go, where can people find out more about you, the podcast? Where can they go? 
podcast is everywhere, Spotify, Apple, and I guess anywhere else. It's inspiring people and places. If you look up my name, BJ Kramer, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So please connect with me. And then our website is www.mcfaglobal.com. You can sign up for our newsletter. I do a weekly blog-ish that's kind of part leadership, part philosophy, part training, part fun. Hopefully some inspiration and some education. Thanks so much for some time on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Anthony, it was so much fun. Thanks for everything you're doing. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with BJ Kramer. He's a really inspirational leader, in my opinion. He's done a lot of great things, and I'm glad that he came on and shared some of what he's done and some of what he's learned with our listeners, because I do think that, you know, listen, not everyone has the chance to serve in the military. And again, we thank all of those that do, but I think that there are some lessons that can be applied certainly to the world of civil engineering. Please remember you can find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. There you will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as any links to any of the resources, websites, or books that BJ mentioned during the episode. And until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.